Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would work in our hearts to assure us of the truth of your scripture. And Lord, we pray that our confidence in your word would be directly connected to our confidence in you. Make us people who know you truly and cause that to be the root, the foundation of everything that we are. And Lord, we pray that you would make us like trees planted by streams of water which yield their fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. This place is now called Kenwood Baptist Church at Victory Memorial. And uh, if you haven't noticed, there's this stained glass window behind us that commemorates the, the, the victory of, of World War I. And, and prior to World War I, little historical aside here, prior to World War I, this church was known as Oakdale Baptist Church. And if you've noticed a little park down the street here, uh, there was a Bible study that started in that park, and one of the founders of Southern Seminary, Basil Manley Jr., was involved in that Bible study. He would come out here and, and lend aid to those, help teach those who were trying to plant a church right here in the Oakdale neighborhood. So the reason I'm telling you about this connection to World War I is because this week I've been reading about the fall of the Ottomans, the Ottoman Turk Empire. And uh, in, in, in World War I, up to World War I, the Ottoman Empire was in control of what we now refer to as Turkey. And then as World War I started, um, the, the Ottoman Turks allied themselves with the Germans. And meanwhile, the Russians and the British and the French were, um, were against the Germans and the Turks. And the Ottomans got to a place, the Ottomans, it was a Muslim empire. They got to a place where they were afraid that this, this group of Christians within their empire, known as the Armenians, that's spelled with an E, I'm not talking about the Armenians, I'm talking about the Armenians, this Armenian people group, they lived within the Ottoman Empire, and the, the Turkish government grew afraid that these Armenian Christians were going to join with the Russians and be a fifth column within uh, the, the Ottoman Turk Empire to try to bring down um, the Ottoman Empire to, to, to join with the Russians as the Russians uh, invaded modern-day Turkey. So they came up with a solution to deal with these Armenian Christians. Uh, this is the first modern genocide. In fact, the word genocide results from a man studying what happened to the Armenians. The Turkish government systematically murdered slaughtered, massacred these Armenian Christians. And, and, and meanwhile, the Turkish government, the, the Ottoman Turks, they're calling for jihad against their, uh, against their enemies. Why do I tell you about the, the Armenian genocide? Well, we're going to be looking at Psalms 129 and 130 today. And uh, the Armenian genocide is just one illustration of the way that the people of God have faced affliction throughout history. This is the age-old conflict, the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It doesn't always end in an, an attempt of one uh, kind of people, one group of people, Muslims in this case, 
to stamp out a whole nation of people, Armenians. It doesn't always go that way, but there is residual enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And as we look at these, at these two psalms, I think that this, uh, what took place with the Armenians, I think it, it will provide a useful uh, sort of point of contact um, uh, with, with these passages. So we come to Psalm 129, and um, the psalmist is going to start much the same way as Psalm 124 started. If you want to look back at Psalm 124, uh, there there's this refrain uh, where the, the speaker says, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. And then he invites all the congregation to say, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. And here in 129, the, the, the construction is similar. Uh, he starts out saying, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. This is referring to the enemies of the people of God afflicting the people of God. Under the old covenant, it was those who afflicted the nation of Israel. Today, I submit to you, it's anybody that's opposed to the gospel. Anybody that's opposed to the gospel, they are going to afflict Christians. And you can read about this across the New Testament. Uh, Peter tells Christians, he says, you were called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. He left you an example of suffering for doing what is good so that you should follow in his steps. Paul says to the believers in Thessalonica, don't you know that when we were still with you, we were telling you that we're destined for this, to suffer for doing what is good. As, as Paul goes around church, uh, planting churches. He tells those churches in Acts 14, through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God. Uh, the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers, they have it backwards. We're not promised that kind of prosperity. We're promised affliction. And it's going to, I think this is why Paul says, I am filling up the measure of what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. He's not saying Christ somehow didn't suffer enough on the cross. I think what he's saying is there's an appointed amount of affliction that God's people are going to have to go to before the end, go through before the end of all things, and I'm doing my part to fill up that measure of suffering. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. And then look at the last line of verse 2. Yet they have not prevailed against me. This is like Paul saying, those great lines, I'm beaten down but not crushed. Uh, he's, he, they're, they're, they stone the man and he gets up from, from, from the beating, from the attempt to kill him. And, and we could look across church history at the way that, that people have tried to stamp out the gospel all to no avail. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed Against me. I mean, I think we can think of things like uh, the Babylonians trying to get Daniel to eat that defiled food to no avail, trying to get those three young men to worship that golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and he can throw them in the fiery furnace and he can't make them leave the faith. It's telling Daniel, You can't pray to this God anymore. And they put him in the lion's den. Over all across history, the wicked, the seed of the serpent, are not going to prevail. Just this morning in Sunday school, we heard of people throwing bombs on top of a church building in, in India. They have not prevailed against me. 
And then the psalmist does something interesting in verse 3. What he does is he says, I'm going I'm to elaborate a little bit here on, on the poetry. The poetry reads, that, reads like this. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Let me, let me flesh this out a little bit. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you know what those wicked people are, the seed of the serpent? They're like farmers. And what they're trying to do is plant the seeds of their wickedness. And so the way that they're going to try to plant their, the seeds of their wickedness is they're going to try to make us their field, and they're going to try to plow us up and then plant wickedness, and then they're going to try to get fruit to come off of these crops that they plant in their fields of wickedness. And here's his response to that in verse 4. The Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteous. And essentially what he's asserting is this is not going to work. This is never going to work. And the reason it's not going to work is because of the character of God. In who he is, God is righteous. And just to be clear, it's not that God has this part of righteousness. It's not like there's this cube of righteousness that that somehow is used to construct who God is. No. Righteousness is what it is because of who God is. God is righteous. He isn't composed of parts. Righteousness is an expression of his character. God is righteous. And that means that if God has said to the serpent, I'm going to raise up the seed of the woman and he's going to bruise your head. That's going to happen. If God has said to Abraham, Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. What it means is that the seed of the serpent who try to oppose Abraham, they're going to come under the curse that the serpent came under. The wicked are not going to prevail because the Lord is righteous. And then, and then the psalmist, I think, does something that's uh, really interesting there in verse 4 when he says, he has cut the cords of the wicked. Turn on your, your biblical awareness here, your antennae, for your sensitivity to use of these terms elsewhere in the Psalter. And is there any place that comes to mind about cords and people trying to cast off cords? Yeah, Gabe read that passage earlier, didn't he? The, 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 the rulers of the world, the wicked of the earth, they're gathering themselves together against who? Against the Lord and his anointed king. And what are they saying? They're saying, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. And the psalmist takes that and he turns it on its head. It's not the wicked who are casting away the cords of the Lord. No, it's the Lord who has cut the cords of the wicked. And, and I've been talking about how uh, psalm 121 is a kind of paradigmatic psalm for all of these songs of ascent that run from 120 through 134. And if the Lord is righteous and he has cut the cords of the wicked, you know what this means? It means the Lord is your keeper. He is your shade at your right hand. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is righteous so, so the wicked, in verses 1 through 3, they're afflicting the righteous, they're plowing the backs of the righteous, and the response of the righteous is, the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. And so the, the verdict that's going to come in verse 5 is inevitable. 
This is what must necessarily happen. Verse 5, may all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Zion here is a way of of calling up all of the imagery of the promise to David, the throne of David, the, 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 the reign of the king from David's line in the city of David, which is Zion. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. You see what the psalmist is doing? He's praying for what he knows is going to happen. This psalmist believes God's character, he believes God's word, and so he prays for God's word to be realized, actualized in life. And and this word Zion, here in verse 5, also serves to sort of link up uh, Psalm 129 with the previous psalms. Look back at 125 verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, immovable. Look at 126, 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. What's that doing? That's acknowledging that there's a story here. Zion was prospering under David and Solomon, and then there was a decline, and then there was a destruction and an exile. But we're anticipating a restoration of the fortunes of Zion. And then look at 128, verse 5. When that restoration happens, the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem. 132.13 For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. God has made this his capital. There is no undoing it. So, 129.5 May all who hate Zion. You know, the psalmist is not saying this directly. He's not not saying, do you remember what God said to Abraham? God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. He's not directly citing that passage, but that passage is back there. That passage is informing informing these statements and resulting in these statements. Because to hate Zion is to dishonor Abraham because it's Abraham's descendant who reigns as king in Zion. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. And then he returns. Verses 4 and 5 are sort of like the turning point. You know, we, we, we work through affliction and the plowing. of. The, we got affliction in verses 1 and 2. We got the plowing of the wicked in verse 3. And then we get to God in verses 4 and 5. And now we're going to work out from God. And what do you think we're going to see? We're going to see agricultural farming kind of imagery because that's what we had in the corresponding section above. Guesting's not sitting up there snickering at me saying this is a chiasm. Maybe I don't know where they are today. But uh, that's what we've going on here. That's what we've got going on. So look at verse 6. Let them be like the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up with which the reaper does not fill his hand nor the binder of sheaves his arms. This is, this is what the psalmist is saying. These guys have plowed wickedness. It's like they've sown the wind and they're going to reap the, the whirlwind. They've plowed wickedness. They are not going to reap. They're not going to see a harvest of trees planted by streams of water. They are not going to yield their fruit in season. No. Essentially what he's saying is they're going to be like chaff. 
that the wind drives away. They themselves are going to be like chaff that the wind drives away. So verse 5, let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up. Apparently, in, this, in that part of the world, uh, you, would, you would have these, these homes, which were maybe made of mud or clay, and evidently you'd have, you'd have grass grow on the homes. But these people don't have the Lord as their shade on their right hand, with the result that the sun will not strike them by day, Psalm 121. No, these people have no shelter. So when the sun strikes them by day, they wither because they're not planted by a stream of water. Wickedness will result in your own destruction. With, with the Ottomans, the, the genocide of the Armenians, it didn't win the war for them. It didn't help their war effort. It didn't keep the Russians out of their land. Wickedness is never going to lead to good fruit. People, people pursue wickedness in an attempt to get at the good life. It will never, ever work under any circumstances. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up. And then he uses an image of the reaper. And um, you, you can almost see this guy going through the fields where there's, where there's a good harvest, where there's rich soil, where there's a well-watered land, and, and he's... He's filling his hand with this, this good fruit that he's harvesting. And then, as he, as he brings it all together, it says, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. You can see him holding these big sheaves against his chest, against his bosom, because he's got to get his arms around all of this good harvest. It's not going to be that way for the wicked. They will never achieve a good harvest because they're plowing against God himself. Verse 3. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. So, so these people, the wicked, they're doing the opposite of Psalms 1 and 2, what Psalms 1 and 2 call for, searching the scriptures, kissing the sun. They're doing the opposite of those things. And they're setting themselves against God's own righteousness. So they're metaphorical plowing in verse 3. They're obvious. I don't think they're literally plowing people. It's metaphorical. It's figurative. It leads to a metaphorical non-harvest. And look where the harvest is located. It's located in who they are. Let them be like grass. It's not just saying they're not going to be wealthy. They're not going to prosper. It's not just saying that. It's saying they are going to be empty people. Let them be like grass on the housetops. And the result of this, in verse 8, is that they are not going to experience the blessing of Abraham. Nobody is going to bless them in the name of the Lord. Look at verse 8. Nor do those who pass by say, of these wicked people, the blessing of Yahweh be upon you. We bless you in the name of Yahweh. Nobody is going to say that about these people. Because they chose to dishonor Abraham and Abraham's seed. And as a result, they come under the very curse of God. The seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head. He has done it, Christ. God will keep the promise he made to Abraham. Paul tells us that the blessing of Abraham, the promise to Abraham, has come to the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. The wicked who oppress the righteous 
have not, and will not prevail over the righteous precisely because God keeps his word. So I don't know what we're going to face in our lives. I don't think we're going to face a situation. I'd be very surprised if we faced a situation like what those Armenian Christians faced, where uh, the men were systematically rounded up. This is what they did. They, the, the Ottoman Turks, they rounded up the men, and they just immediately massacred them. And then they put the women and children on death marches. They just marched them toward the Syrian desert for them to die on the way. And then, and then they would... They would um, set up these raiding bands that would come in and, and, and uh, attack these, these parades of the dispossessed, these Armenian Christians on the way. I don't think we're going to face that. But whatever we do face, we need to be people who know the wicked are not ultimately going to prosper. Even if they plow our backs, they're going to be like grass on the housetops. They're going to be like chaff that the wind drives away. Because, as Paul says in Galatians 6, 7, God cannot be mocked. As a man sows, he will also reap. Those who plow to plant the seeds of wickedness are not going to reap a harvest of righteousness. This is going to work its way out in life as wicked people live discontented lives that cannot ultimately succeed, and it's going to work its way out on the day of judgment. When the Lord Christ comes on the white horse to visit the Father's wrath and the power of the Spirit. So let me, let me take you through, I, I think we've basically got three sections of this psalm here. Verses 1 through 3, verses 4 and 5, verses 6 through 8. And I want to give you three points of application for this. And, the, and there's really, this is all, the, these points of application are, are are flowing out of this one question that gets at what the psalmist is doing here. Here's the question. Are you believing the Bible and applying it to your life circumstances? That's the question. Are you believing? That's what the psalmist is modeling for us. The psalmist is modeling, I'm going to lay hold of Genesis 3.15, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Psalms 1 and 2, and I'm going to bring that to bear in my suffering, in my affliction. So verses 1 through 3, he's crying out about his affliction. And I think this, is, this should be seen as a prayer. So question, point of application from verses 1 through 3. Are you taking your affliction to the Lord? We'll get more of this in Psalm 130. Are you taking your affliction to the Lord? That's what we need to do with it. When we are afflicted, we must call upon him. Because he is everything Psalm 121 says he is. He is our shade on our right hand. He is our keeper. He will not let our foot be moved. Number two, this is verses four and five. Are you taking refuge in Yahweh's righteousness? When you get wronged, when somebody does you wrong, when uh, people um, set themselves up against the Lord and his anointed, are you, are you confident like this psalmist in verse 4, the Lord is righteous? And that has all these implications for what's going to result. Number three, this is responding to verses 6 through 8. Do you see what the outcome of the wicked will be? Do you see how the wicked turn out? You know, one of the reasons I think the Proverbs say things like, 
uh, wisdom cries aloud in the streets is because it's like, the, the, it's like Solomon is personifying uh, wisdom saying, look at the way people's lives go. Go into the market, look at the way that people conduct themselves, and look at how the voice of wisdom can be heard crying out in, in the behavior of these people. Do you see what the outcome of the wicked will be? They will not become righteous oaks. They will not become joyful, glad-hearted people who live, live these rich and full lives enjoying God and all His goodness. Are you believing the Bible and applying it to your life circumstances? That's what we see in Psalm 129. We see more of it in Psalm 130. It's almost like the affliction of Psalm 129, verses 1 through 3, has set the scene for Psalm 130. So the psalmist says here in Psalm 130, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Verses 1 and 2 are going to form a unit. This psalm, Psalm 130, is going to come in these two-verse units, and, and they're thematically and, and lexically connected. In other words, there are these words that are repeated in these two-verse units. So you see the word voice there in verse 2. It happens again later in verse 2. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So the psalmist is lifting his voice to the Lord from the depths. Um, I know that um, it may not, may not look like uh, everybody around you here at Kenwood Baptist Church has times when they go through the depths, but we all have these times. It may be worse for some than others, but we will all find ourselves in the depths. And, and I've said this before, I'm going to keep saying it. I think it is so comforting that a psalmist inspired by the Holy Spirit... A guy who's writing the Bible is talking about the depths from which he is crying out to the Lord. It's, it's like what Paul says. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. We have a common experience. And this, psalm, this, psalm, this psalmist is saying, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. He's pleading to be heard People plead to be heard because they feel like they need to. Now in verses 3 and 4, the psalmist, it's almost as though what's happened is he's crying out to the Lord and the Lord opens his eyes for him to see the holiness of God. And he realizes, he says in verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand. This is where we want our worship to take us. This is where we want our crying out to the Lord to take us. We want to be able to perceive and understand. My biggest problem is not my circumstances. My biggest problem is not the way that these people that are bothering me are acting. My biggest problem is that I'm going to stand before a holy God and have to give account to him. My biggest problem is me and my sin, that's my biggest problem. And the rhetorical question there, oh Lord, who can stand? That has an obvious answer, doesn't it? Nobody. 
nobody could stand before the Lord. O Lord, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? My biggest problem is not my health failing. My, my biggest problem is that God is holy and I'm a sinner. That's our biggest problem. If you're here this morning and you're visiting this church and maybe you don't identify as a Christian or maybe you don't come around that often and you're not sure exactly what we teach here, we want you to lay hands firmly on this idea. We think that the biggest problem that any one of us has individually is the fact that God is holy. And that's why we sing about Jesus. That's why we talk about the cross so much. This reality is why we are so overwhelmed that God would send his son as an expression of his love because it's Christ that solves this biggest problem that we have. Now, verse 4, I think, is surprising. Surprising to the, to the point of being shocking if you think about it. Verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness. And we would expect... Therefore, I feel such relief. But that's not what it says, is it? It says, that you may be feared. With you, there is forgiveness. With God, there is forgiveness. With the Holy One, before whom no one could stand, there is forgiveness. That you may be feared. This is what keeps us from being free grace people. This kind of idea that's all over the Bible. This is why we don't say, hey, just come get your fire insurance and then go live however you want. Doesn't matter if you ever show up here at church. Doesn't matter if you ever act like you're a follower of Jesus. No, there's forgiveness with God as a result of which he's feared. Now, a minute ago I was saying some things about Jesus and God's holiness and our sinfulness. There's forgiveness. If you're here and you're not a Christian... You ought to be interested in knowing how that forgiveness gets extended to you. And, and it gets extended to you by you perceiving your need of it and you saying, those behaviors, which I knew were wrong, that I tried to justify, that I recognize as sin, that God has said are sin, I'm going to turn away from trying to live that way. And I'm going I'm to put my hope and trust fully in Jesus through whom this forgiveness, the Bible says, comes. So you turn away from sin, you trust in Christ, and then you need to walk in the fear of God. You know, we expect the Bible to say something like this. You're a righteous judge that you may be feared. Why does it say, why does it say, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared? Here's what I think is going on with the logic here. The fact that there is Forgiveness reinforces the fact that there's a standard. And the standard is the righteousness. Okay? So, in other words, there, there, there's a seamless connection. There's no seam between God's ability to forgive, his, his prerogative to extend mercy, and the righteous standard that makes mercy necessary. We think of these as different things. They're the same thing. Who God is makes this so. This is, this is connected. Uh, what I, the way I'm coming at this, I mean, this is not the way that commentators tend to come at it. Commentators, what they want to do is they want to get here and redefine the word fear. They want to say, well, this shows that fear is just relational reverence. I don't think that's what it is at all. I think 
you experience God's forgiveness, you fear God because you recognize the only person that can forgive me is the one who has been offended. And, and I would suggest that this is evidence for a, a, a theological concept that, that, that people refer to as divine simplicity. It's the idea that God is simple. Now, just hang in there, okay? Here's, here's what this, this idea suggests. Don't check out on me right here. I think this is really important. Divine simplicity, the idea that God is simple, what it means is that God's love is an expression of his character. God's righteousness is also an expression of his character. And it's the same character. And it's not like there's a righteous cube in him and a loving cube in him. He's not made up of parts. He's not composed of these various attributes. These various attributes, love, mercy, justice, wisdom, truth, these all come out of who he is as God, okay? God's righteousness is the application of his character to those who deviate from his standard. God's love is the application of his character to those to whom he chooses to show mercy and extend his kindness to. But it's all flowing out of the one character of God. So so these things that we look at and we say, oh, there are all these different attributes of God. Really, it's all just God. It's who he is. It's his character flowing out. And I think that's why the text says, with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. If you don't have the righteous standard, you don't even need forgiveness. But the fact that there's a righteous standard and the fact that it's his righteous standard flowing out of his character makes it where there's a need for forgiveness and makes those who experience the forgiveness ready to fear this God. Who has forgiven them. And again, this is not a fear of some uh, angry, unpredictable, uh, uh, violent God that's not worthy of trust. This is a fear that takes place within the context of a relationship where you recognize this is a being that is bigger and greater than I could ever even begin to conceive. He's infinite, and that's terrifying. In a good way. It's a good kind of fear. It's a fear you should feel in response to your experience of God. Okay, so we've got this theme of forgiveness and this relational uh, wonder of experience of God's mercy in verses 3 and 4. And then we move to waiting in verses 5 and 6. Why would the psalmist say, I wait for the Lord? My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Why would he say this? Let's start with watchman. This, this seems to, to draw upon guys that have to stay up all night protecting the city. And, and apparently what the psalmist is assuming is that we will all, we will all feel their pain, especially just before sunrise. And we will all feel with them this longing to go to bed, this longing to be able to get some sleep once the sun finally comes up. And then connect that to the second line of verse 5, in his word, I hope. So he's waiting for the Lord, 
and he's hoping in God's word. And, and what this does is it keys into the broader Bible, the broader biblical story. It keys into this broader narrative where God has promised to make all things new. And this psalmist is saying, I'm in the depths. And then I experience God. And now I, I start thinking about God's plan and God's promises. And I'm hoping for the for the sunrise from on high. I'm hoping for the new day that's going to dawn. And I'm yearning and longing for that day more than watchmen yearn and long for the morning. He's waiting. And then, apparently, he thinks this is a good place to be. From the depths to the worship of God to the consideration of God's broader program and plan and promises in verses 5 and 6. And then he addresses the people of God in verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. You know what he's saying? He's saying, look, it may be bad. You may be suffering, but where else are you going to turn? Is there some other God out there that has promised a resurrection from the, from the dead? No. Is there some other God out there that can extend forgiveness to you because he did not spare his own son? No. Is there some other God out there with a righteous standard? No. No, there is not. In fact, you look at the, the quote-unquote righteous standard of those other gods, and their standards are not righteous at all. Their standards are, in fact, murderous. Their standards give rise to things like genocide. It's wickedness is what you find. If you want righteousness, if you're motivated by righteousness, you ought to be interested in the God of the Bible because he's the only one who grounds and roots it and gives it a foundation. So, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. Notice how similar that statement, with the Lord there is steadfast love, is to verse 4, with the Lord there is forgiveness. With the Lord there is steadfast love. With the Lord there is forgiveness because that's who he is. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. God will redeem his people. There is hope. And the redemption that the psalmist is hoping for, yearning for more than the watchmen wait for the morning, that redemption is going to communicate God's steadfast love and seal God's forgiveness for his people. That redemption is going to vindicate God's people, judge their enemies, restore their fortunes, establish God's promises, fulfill the blessing of Abraham, and bring to culmination all that God has promised to do through David. And Jesus came to fulfill the whole of the Old Testament, all of the longings, every line of every psalm, Every hope of every promise that David's Lord might sit at God's right hand until every enemy was underfoot. That the earth might be full of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That every promise might be yes and amen. The king has come. He has accomplished redemption. He sits at the right hand. And from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Let me give you four applications corresponding to the four parts of Psalm 130. So verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Where do you instinctively turn when you find yourself in the depths? We want to be people who from our souls, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. There, there are so, 
I mean, this psalm is such a resource for people that are suffering and, and mourning and grieving and feeling depressed. You can pray the very words of the Bible with authenticity. Verses 3 and 4. Do you feel God's holiness? And does that holiness make you fear God? If, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, we want you to take a hard look at verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And you be honest with yourself. And you take stock of your life. And you think about all the ways that you know you have offended the holy standard of the righteous God. And then we just make to you the offer of verse 4. With that God there is forgiveness. Turn to Him. This is the only way you're going to be forgiven, is by repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ. It's the only hope you have. Verses 5 and 6, I wait for the Lord. We, we want to be waiting like a refugee fleeing genocidal killers. The reason we know about the Armenian genocide is because there was this, this, this priest in the Armenian Apostolic Church named Grigorus Balakian. And Eugene Rogan writes about him. He says this, Grigorus Balakian had made the firm decision to survive the annihilation of the Armenians in order to bear witness to the suffering of his people for future generations. And then a page later, he writes, Surviving the genocide was easier said than done. By preserving cordial relations with his captors and in his own words, putting his trust in God. Balakian lived one day at a time, always at risk of sudden death. We want to be those who wait. We want to wait out the terrors. I don't think, I doubt that anybody in this room is going to be terrified like a man facing an empire trying to exterminate his people group. I don't think any of us in this room are going to face genocidal killers. But we want to wait like people facing that kind of danger. We want to put our trust in God. And we want to hope. We want to wait like Abraham waiting for Isaac's birth. It may seem impossible. And we want to hope. Verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord. We want to hope like those who know that when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Father, we could not have written for ourselves a better word. We could not have equipped ourselves with better prayers. You have been so good to us. And Lord, we want to be those who know that no one can stand before you, but with you there is forgiveness, and with you there is steadfast love, and you are the one who is going to redeem every one of your people. And Lord, I pray that everybody in this room would turn from sin and trust in Christ and be among those who experience plentiful redemption. Lord, yours is the standard. Yours is the righteousness. Yours is the steadfast love. Yours is the forgiveness. And we hope 
to be those who draw upon what you've given us in your word like a tree draws on the water of the stream that goes by its roots. And Lord, we want to bear fruit in season. We don't want our leaves to wither. We don't want to be grass on the housetops. So we pray that you would establish us as oaks of righteousness for the glory of your great name. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.